This is a recording of the debate from SJW to Gammon, Weaponising Political Language, recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2018 Festival on Saturday the 13th of October at the Barbican in London. The debate is introduced by the Director of the Academy of Ideas, Claire Fox. Welcome to this opening keynote here at the Battle of Ideas 2018. I'm Claire Fox and I'm the Director of the Academy of Ideas and we, when we were putting together the programme for this year's festival, one of the things that we noticed in all of the debates and discussions that we were thinking about was just how febrile and debased the language had become in relation to debates on everything from new technology to politics. And so we felt that there was something that we should explore here, particularly in the way that language is being used to delegitimise opponents very often. Um, and there's a kind of nasty, toxic atmosphere in relation to language. Some of you may have heard me doing my opening remarks, and I'm, I made the point that, that we've actually lost one of the speakers here this morning, Simon Lancaster, which is a great shame, because he's lost his voice. And uh, he's a speechwriter who's lost his voice. And I made the, and he said, can you imagine anything worse? And I was making the point... Well, actually, one of the worst things is it feels as though we've all lost our voice. Um, and that in some ways, kind of language is being unhooked from its moorings. So we wanted to talk about those kind of issues, how spontaneous exchanges between people uh, suddenly are policed all the time with words like, is that appropriate? Or your language is inappropriate. And also the coercion of people to adopt language that maybe feels alien to them. People will have been following, I'm sure, this... Uh, saga that happened this week with the Welcome Collections, a very fine scientific institution, fantastic gallery. You know, they've previously been sponsors of this festival and we've always had a great deal of admiration for Welcome as a scientific biomedical charity. But for some unfathomable reason, they put out a statement using the phrase WUMXN, which you can't say because it's unpronounceable, so replacing women was WIMXN, all in the name of diversity. And there was a great deal of discussion about this, but it was a kind of peculiar moment where language had kind of lost a sense of itself. And so not only do you have kind of incivility, but you have a situation where you're not quite sure what words mean anymore. And so you have a situation where a senior police officer can be disciplined for saying whiter than white, uh, because it's imputed as being racist, when uh, obviously that was never his intention. So, is there a kind of newspeak going on in terms of uh, uh, 1984, a kind of totalitarian policing of language, or is that a crass way of understanding this? Because it's also true that one might want some civility as well, and that maybe political language changes over time, there's nothing wrong with kind of certain words being not used anymore, What's going on? Should we mind that uh, uh, language is changing? And that's the kind of thing that we're going to talk about and the politics and the philosophy that lies behind it. So I'm now going to introduce the panel in the order in which they speak. Just to explain the format for those of you who are not familiar with it, they'll be given six to eight minutes each to make their opening remarks and we may draw uh, some uh, comments from each other, but then we're very much over to the audience. And it's a toing and froing between us and the audience. Not a traditional Q&A, by the way. It's really a public conversation. So we're anticipating that you will 
will speak. But let me introduce our speakers. First of all, we're going to hear from uh, Professor Frank Faradi, who's a sociologist and social commentator, uh, very much an international public intellectual. Every time I tried to contact him here, he was in a different country, doing a speech on a different topic. So we're delighted to have him with us. He's the author of numerous books, two that particularly are focus of debates at this festival. His latest book is How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, and he's also the author of The Influential Populism and the European Culture Wars. And indeed, populism is precisely one of those words, in a way, which has been weaponised over recent times, and he's written very interestingly about that. Then we'll be hearing from Sophia Gaston, Sophie, as I, I will call her, uh, Director of the Centre for Social and Political Risk at the Henry Jackson Society, and Visiting Research Fellow at the London School of Economics. Until recently, she was the Deputy Director of Demos, and she wrote a fantastic research document on comparative attitudes to nostalgia. Really, it's a book, and it's a fantastic read if you can get hold of it. I find it very stimulating and thought-provoking. And indeed, as a social and political uh, researcher, Sophie conducts international citizen-focused projects on social and cultural crisis, on political change, and on the media and democracy. And last but not least, we'll be hearing from Professor Dr. Robert Fallow, who is a philosopher at the University of Art and Industrial Design in Linz in Austria, and is the author in German of adult language about its disappearance from politics and culture. That's probably a crude translation, but if I'd have tried to say it in German, we'd have not got far. Another book, The Pleasure Principle in Culture, Illusions Without Owners, won the best book published in 2014 from the American Board of Professional Psychology. And Robert is indeed a founding member of the Viennese Psychoanalytical Research Group. Can we give a very warm welcome to our... our Frank, kick us off. Right, there is uh, two things I'm not going to talk about that are very, very important. One is that we are going to have to develop a new political language because we can no longer use the old one. It's completely uh, gone by its sell-by date, uh, which is very important. And secondly, we think we're in an unusually crude political world where we use uh, the most disgusting words to kind of attack each other. That's not particularly new. I think language has always been weaponized. If you go back to the Tudorian period uh, or the French Revolution, you'll find that the language has always been of, often very unrestrained. It's just that because of the social media and other factors, we experience these more depraved forms of communication very personally. So I'm not going to talk about that. But what I want to talk about is what I think is the distinct feature, the unique feature of the way that language is weaponized in our time, what's different about the way we communicate politically to the past. And I think the most interesting thing about our polarized discourse is that language these days in politics is used not so much to convince somebody else, not so much to start a dialogue, uh, but rather to police people's words. And I experience that a lot. In the universities where I work, we all have speech codes. When I publish a journal article in an academic journal, I get a a list of words I cannot use, you know, sort of, it's a bit like if you're a child, you know, these are the words you cannot use. And, you know, now and again, you kind of called out and said, Frank, you can no longer use that particular expression. I was doing a, an interview in the United States, and I used the word hysterical, which I think is quite an okay word, you know, I called somebody hysterical, and I, I guess I was accused of triggering somebody by using that particular thing. But as Claire was indicating earlier on, you know, sort of a lot of our words are self-consciously not about communicating. You know, in the words we use are problematic, 
I don't know what that means. You know, I think what they really mean is you're wrong, but they don't want to say that. It's problematic. It's unwelcome. The number of times that my, my remarks have been, that's very unwelcome, Frank. You know, what they really wanted to see was fuck off, but they, didn't, you know, <laughs> they, they couldn't quite bring themselves to you know, be absolutely clear and coherent. So you, you really have this kind of uh, language, which is have this kind of low-life Aurelian in the way that it self-consciously avoids being clear and direct and, 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 and indicating what's really happening here. But I think what's very interesting, what I find probably most disturbing is not this euphemistic way of talking to one another, one another but I think there is this kind of implicit uh, desire to psychologically invalidate people who you don't like. You want to silence them without necessarily putting a gun at their head. And the first time it really hit me as to how this works was a long, long time ago. It was back in 1991, before many of you were born. And, it, and in 1991, there was this big hoo-ha, again about a, a Supreme Court nomination, a black American guy who was being nominated as a Supreme Judge. And there was a woman called Anita Hill, who uh, uh, also suggested that he had done something to uh, harass her or something. I'm not really sure now. And there's a big, this was, it wasn't as big an issue as, as, as the Kavanaugh one. And the phrase that kept on you know, kind of coming up time and time again that was used by a lot of American feminists uh, to re respond to the claims that they weren't really sure that this person had done what, what people have suggested, the phrase that they, that they used was, they just don't get it. I don't know if any of you remember that, they just don't get it. And, and that was enough, you know, because when I say they just don't get it or you just don't get it, what I'm really saying is I'm not particularly interested in what you think or what you say. When you say that somebody doesn't get it, you imply that they, they lack the moral or the intellectual resources to comprehend some very complex idea that you understand. And when you say they just don't get it, that's another way of saying there's no point in talking to each other. Right? There's no point in having any dialogue because what's the point? If they don't get it, you, know, you, you might as well talk to the wall. You know, that's going to be probably more creative. So it's a very interesting use of language because what it implies is not just simply that their ideas are wrong or flawed. You know, it's not the, they, as a person, uh, are somehow inferior, morally inferior to you because they just simply uh, do not get it. So it's really a statement about the intellectual and moral capacity of they. They just don't get it and, and suggest that it's pointless to have discussion and in the course of doing that, you invalidate the person who doesn't simply get it. Now, I think since that time, this was back in the early 90s, this has become totally institutionalized, this way of talking about people, about having discussions and debate. And increasingly, what you're finding is that there is no longer an attempt to disprove your argument, to actually to take an argument apart and to show its flaws and its inner kind of contradictions. Instead, what you have is a, an attempt to invalidate people, and thereby invalidating by basically saying that they are not aware, as you are, that's the word that's often used, I'm aware, they're not. What you're doing is you're flattering yourself for getting it, uh, as opposed to those other, other in, in the individuals. And one of the uh, uh, unfortunate developments that has occurred is that as identity politics has gone totally mainstream, the they don't get it kind of attitude has become really, really uh, sort of acceptable. So for example, there's a book, a bestseller in America, which everybody's talking about what a wonderful book it is. It's very, very creative. I, I myself, I think it's, you know, no more exciting than the old London telephone book was. You know, sort of, but anyway, that's maybe my mean-spirited 
because I guess I just don't get it. Uh, <laughs> the book is called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edel Lodge. And it basically, what, he, what he's really saying, why I'm not, you know, I'm not talking to white people about race, uh, is it, it's the, that's, what he's really saying is it's useless to, to talk across the racial divide. That there is something in, in, in our biology or our psychology or in our experience which almost makes reasonable communication impossible. So why should I talk about race, you know, sort of? And in a sense, uh, sort of what he's really doing is he's following this basic trope of identity politics, which uh, is really about carving out areas that are not open to discussion and debate. I think what, that's what we find. There is more and more areas that are being carved out that are simply beyond discussion and debate. You cannot really uh, have a view on that. Uh, and some people say you, you, you're not allowed to talk about this because you will trigger somebody, you'll make them feel uncomfortable. But very often, I think this is, uh, this is what's unique about our time. People are making statements about why we cannot discuss and why we shouldn't have a debate on the, on the grounds of their experience. In other words, they're saying is I've experienced racism, I've experienced homophobia, I experienced uh, xenophobia, I experienced anti-Semitism. Only I know what I'm talking about. Anybody else, you know, I'm not really interested in what you've got to say uh, in this. So Afro Hirsch, the Guardian columnist, had an article in the Guardian, which you might have seen, which is titled, I've had enough of white people who deny my experience. Uh, and basically, she basically, what, what she's really explaining is that her experience uh, is, is decisive in determining, you know, whether somebody was a, a racist or not. She's got a privileged insight into that, which everybody else who hasn't got that experience simply lacks. And that's really the end of discussion. I mean, you can't really argue with something like that. Uh, you, you know, and you saw this on BBC Question Time recently, where this poor white guy in the audience was saying, I don't think that England is that racist. And then somebody comes back and says, it's, and she says, and everybody gets, a, gets a, a standing ovation, it's funny that you're a white man saying that, how are you going to experience it? You're a white man. And that was it. You know, so in other words, what we have is a situation where personal experience becomes transformed into incontrovertible facts. And one of the corrosive consequences of this kind of dialogue or non-dialogue is that there can no longer be any basis uh, for consensual ver verifiable facts or consensual norms. If experience trumps everything, if we cannot talk across the divide, there's no longer any debate. In other words, what's now happening, and this is, again, what's very, very unique, is there is no longer two sides to an argument. So when I was in Australia and discussing gay marriage and, and just trying to look at it from both points of view, I was told, Frank, you can't do that. There's only one argument, which is for gay marriage. If you're against it, then you're racist, xenophobic, you know, homophobic, and all the rest of that. There is no two sides to these kinds of arguments. And I think that once you get to that point, then it's no longer the case that you know, the language becomes uh, hateful or corrosive or uncivilized. What we are really saying is that language no longer serves the purpose of political communication and public debate. And I think that's really what we've got to worry about. And, in, and in that context, that I would argue we have to invent and develop a new civilized, enlightened form of verbal communication. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I conduct focus groups around Europe and 
these conversations about debate and language have become a completely critical component of them. I cannot do a focus group without people um, spending a quite a considerable amount of time talking about discussions and topics that they feel have been placed out of bounds. Um, and the, the length of these lists of topics that are out of bounds are quite extensive. And I think it is no surprise at all that many of these uh, topics that are out of bounds, uh, community, culture, identity, citizenship, belonging, have now become uh, critical underpinnings of many of the uh, I suppose, shocks and uh, forces that are shaping our political cultures at the moment and this sense of heightened uh, appetite for risk amongst citizens. Um, and I think if we want to understand the trajectory and success of someone like Tommy Robinson, for example, who really, you know, some time ago was absolutely on the fringes. I mean, if you think about a kind of political spectrum, um, he was beyond where we have sat UKIP and, you know, he was obviously a lot of what's going on in our politics at the moment, the needle is shifting of sort of where are the, um, uh, I suppose, these sorts of anchors of, of um, how we define the goalposts of our um, political spectrum. But, um, I mean, in, in my focus groups in England, certainly uh, Tommy Robinson does come up because even people who disagree with, say, 90% of what he has to say and might think he's a thug and a lout and not someone who they would have traditionally supported, uh, they will increasingly feel compelled to defend his right to have a voice in our public debate. So I think that all of these questions about language and so on are really coming to this broader question of how we have space for constructive conflict in our politics. And I think there's a lot of people who say we need nicer politics. Um, we need less conflict. And I don't think that conflict is the issue. I think it's about constructive conflict. Um, and if you think about many of the great achievements we've had in our societies, the huge human advancement, certainly over the past um, century, you know, whether that's in terms of women's suffrage or um, same-sex marriage or um, gender equality and women's emancipation, these came through conflict and I think conflict should be a healthy force in our, in our politics. I think we can't talk about language in our politics at the moment as well without addressing the hyper-polarisation and partisanship as well that has become um, embedded within it. Um, I think that there is a sense that this sort of era of bipartisanship uh, that once perhaps was possible around these kind of urgent generational issues uh, no longer feels possible. And, and that's as much coming from the left as from the right. I think Frank alluded to this as well, but previously, if you're thinking about how we approach things across a chamber, um, you might have thought that your political opponents were wrong, but now they are dismissed as bad. There's a kind of moral inference that we ascribe um, to arguments and, and it's going extending beyond the argument itself to the character of the person delivering that. Um, this is incredibly clear in the United States, of course. Um, there's actually really interesting polling that's been done by Pew around um, Democrats and Republicans and they now actually see the other side, the concept of the other side being in power as an existential threat to the future of the country. And I think that's, 
that is um, incredibly worrying because if we think about politics as a reactionary force as well, think about the fact that um, so many of the movements that have mobilized against Trump, it's called the resistance. There's a sort of a very sort of fractious nature to that. And I've spent quite a lot of time in um, Saxony over the past year where some of you may have heard of these uh, riots in Chemnitz and so on. I mean, Pegida there, you know, is, is to the right of the IFD. They are a street protest movement. They are still holding move, um, protests in, in the center of Dresden every Monday night with thousands of people and not just Nazi skinheads, you know, um, show up, you know, families, doctors, parents, children are showing up. Um, and, and there is something that feels, you know, revolutionary in nature. People, it's these people that are talking about 1989, which we have sort of seen as this kind of great um, liberalizing movement. Um, so uh, something that has become very uh, striking to me in focus groups in Germany in particular is that everybody, when I do them on the west of in the west of Germany, they are very dismissive of what's going on in the East. Uh, they describe, they use this word of Nazis as, as a frequent slur um, with, with great abandon. There's huge, I mean, you see this in the graffiti of even CDU posters ahead of the election and so on. And then of course in the East they say, well, they're using this Nazi slur to silence us. And that is a really um, concerning uh, political environment. I think also, obviously, all of this comes to this point around political correctness, um, who is and who isn't allowed to have a voice in our debates. I think as, as you've mentioned, this, this point around lived experience is the sort of Andrea Leadsom mentality. You know, you're, you're only allowed, you can only possibly care about children if you have children of your own. Um, but I think that the more that we talk about the issues of others, um, the more we are forging a sense of collectivism and community, which is, is becoming increasingly absent in our political debate. So I think identity is becoming an obstacle to debate, which um, obviously Francis Fukuyama's uh, new book really gets into the heart of this, which is we, we identity, culture and politics, um, he argues, is um, encouraging us to think about our differences rather than what we um, can hold in common. So I think if we think about debate as traditionally there's sort of been kind of two different conceptions in terms of why would you have an, a, a debate or an argument with someone, I think firstly you could be trying to learn something, uh, secondly you could be trying to persuade someone of your argument. I think now we have this kind of third conception which is around silencing, but that in doing so um, it stops being a debate at all. Um, so I think that uh, Partisanship, I think polarization, political correctness are all absolutely feeding into these three Ps, are feeding into our um, challenges around language. But I absolutely agree with Frank. I think we need to be looking for a way to have um, more constructive debate. But I don't think that that should be mutually exclusive with having more conflict in our politics. Okay, thanks. I, I think um, both Frank and Sophie have given us really loads that we can kind of uh, dig deeper into uh, afterwards. But just finally in the formal part, Robert. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My access to the problem of language in current contemporary politics was triggered by an experience on a flight to the United States a while ago. It was a flight from continental Europe. The plane belonged to a European company 
and we were still above European ground when I tried to watch the movie Amour by Austrian director Michael Haneke. You know, maybe it's this movie about two old people dying, uh, Trintignant and, and his wife, and sad story. Before the movie started, I got a warning. The warning said, attention, this movie contains adult language that could hurt your feelings. <laughs> so as you know, this is not a porn or something, but it's also not that they simply said this movie is not for people below whatever, 18 years of age. No, they said this is adult language and this can hurt your feelings as an adult person. And I thought at this moment, okay, this is something that belongs to neoliberalism. Why? Because I think this is precisely what we can call the dismantling of public space and privatization of public space and uh, customs in public space uh, under a neoliberal regime. But until then, we supposed as going by itself that adult people can stand and bear adult language is now put into question and maybe you are adult but somehow different and therefore you have a right not to be able to stand adult language or to switch it off if you don't like it. Uh, you could make a lawsuit against the air uh, cargo company uh, that uh, this language has hurt your feelings. I think what we should see clearly here now is uh, at this point that this is not only an issue of freedom of speech or something of this kind. Uh, of course, this is also very important here, but I would claim more importantly uh, is at stake a question of solidarity in society. Uh, the solidarity of mutual trust in public space that we assume that you and I and you are all adult people and that means basically that we uh, all can expect from the other that we have all overcome narcissism, you know, the Freudian concept of childhood, that the idea that wishing can help and that we are the center of a wishfully structured universe. Uh, we can all trust that we have overcome that idea at some point and therefore we are all uh, entitled to expect from the other to be prepared for a life that brings about some nuisances and some hindrances and obstacles and disappointments but also that the others are strong enough to bear these little disappointments. I think this is a kind of base, basic social trust that, uh, and the basic pattern of solidarity that uh, produces something and, uh, as, and that is a requirement for uh, public space in the very elementary sense of a bourgeois public and a democratic public. So I would say the, the rule that we have to defend here is that everybody is able to bear adult language if they are adult people and nobody, no matter from what group, from what sexual orientation or whatever, uh, has the right to uh, to declare a, se a special sensitivity. Uh, I would follow here the principle promoted by Hannah Arendt who once said nobody has the right to obey I think the same goes here. Nobody has the right to be a complete idiot. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and I think 
this struggle and the neoliberal tendency in it, uh, it has been nicely depicted in the way your fellow countryman Sasha Baron Cohen in his role as Ali G used the notion of respect. In the traditional sense, respect would precisely mean to assume that you are all adult people and that you are rational and that you know what everybody knows. RDG has nicely turned this around and used it precisely in the way that identity politics uses the notion of respect. He says to his interlocutors the most idiotic things. So he has, for example, the president of the US Rifle Association as a guest, as a talk guest, and he says, I have heard that guns have not such a good reputation these days. Is that true? And the rifleman says, yes. And he says, uh, have there ever been people harmed by guns? And <laughs> And the rifle guy says, yes. And he says, when did this happen? And, 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 and when the other starts staring at him, like, uh, where, where have you been living until now? He says, respect, brother. No? So respect means here, uh, you have not to ask where I have been living and what my experiences are that I can ask such silly questions. No, respect means precisely not to ask this and don't touch where, where this guy comes from. Maybe two remarks how this uh, connects to neoliberalism. I think in the first place we have to put this into a bigger picture uh, of culturalization of social politics. There has been a considerable shift in the economic paradigm of ruling politics in the Western countries around 1980, well known to you here uh, with the shift that brought about the government by Margaret Thatcher. But all over Europe, we had the same thing more or less in those years. Until then, all the governments, no matter of if right or left, after the Second World War, pursued a Keynesian politics of, uh, of the welfare state uh, that brought about welfare, wealth, and an increasing inequality, equality in Western societies until about 1980. You can read the numbers about that and the data in the study done by Thomas Piketty. After 1980, all the political party, no matter right or left, shifted to a neoliberal politics of privatization and cutting down social funds. Now, at this moment, the leftist or center-left parties could not distinguish themselves anymore on the on the level of economic and social politics from their opponents, so they had to shift and put all their differences into cultural politics that don't cost much. So uh, the compensations were given on mostly on the level of language. So we don't give you fundings, but we call you by a nicer name. This was the principle of this. And I think what we have also to see very clearly is that this is mainly a politics now of exceptions and of representatives who are the agents of those groups and who speak on behalf of those groups. So the ideology that we observe in neoliberalism, this propaganda of sensitivity that everybody feels they have the right to express that some of their feelings have been hurt, uh, this sensitivity propaganda is embodied in apparatuses that belongs to parties, universities, whatever, boards. And in every of these boards, you have one professional who takes care about language and how a certain group should be named. 
this does not bring any benefit to those groups, but of course it brings benefits to those agents who speak on behalf of those groups, and this is why those politics are so ferociously defended. But uh, here, this is my last point, I would recall a, a quote by Bertolt Brecht, they cut your bread in tiny slices. That's the quotation, if I correct, translate this correctly. They, they cut your bread in tiny slices. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. That, is, that was so interesting and lo loads to discuss now. So, but first of all, I just wanted to ask uh, you, Frank, about one of Sophie's points, which I thought was really useful. And then actually, Robert, you might want to look at this as well, about how the they're not listening to us or they, we haven't got a voice is actually feeding into populism <laughs> it, it, for want of a better term but it's really true that the Tommy Robinson supporters at the moment will say nobody listens to us and that's something that comes up from Trump supporters all the time and so on and so forth it was interesting that Tommy Robinson was interviewed on Newsnight and you you know it's caused an enormous because people have said that, that Newsnight shouldn't have interviewed him, which then, of course, fuels the idea that you're, you're not being heard, even though, in fact, he had a long interview. But it was... Uh, anyway, do you kind of get that, or is that something you recognise from the populism stuff, or is it just a kind of way of people playing the victim card themselves, in a way? Well, not really. I was in the Czech Republic uh, <laughs> last week, and I'd, I'd done a speech, and afterwards I went to a bar where there was... It's a working-class bar, you know, sort of people drinking beer, and so they kind of all come up to me and they say, we really like what you said. Uh, it was really quite important for us, even though our, my English is not that good. And the reason for that is because until we heard you speak, we didn't really feel that we were part of a conversation. And I heard that expression being used that we're not part of a conversation or we're not being taken seriously or, you know, sort of, or somehow uh, our voice is just uh, pathologized. I mean, don't use the word pathologized. That becomes a recurring theme where people feel, and actually, it's not just simply a, a, a perception on their part that's not based on reality. The reality is, is that they are really looked down upon as insignificant individuals that you do not t need to take seriously. In the old days, you used to have uh, what, you, what we used to call anti-working class ideals. That was a kind of a right-wing ideal that working class people were a different nation, as they used to say in the 19th century. Now that's been extended, so it's now what you've got is this kind of disdain that uh, is no longer even hidden. And I think that um, you know, sort of the, 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 what's really changed in relation to the, 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 these groups of people in society is that you, you, you don't just simply don't want to listen to them or take them into the discussion. What you want to do is really immobilize them. And you want to basically create a situation where their internal life uh, is, is kind of regulated in such a way that they turn in and on themselves and become somehow completely uh, irrelevant within public life. And I think that attempt to insulate uh, the political system and the institutions, you see that in Germany very, very clearly, insulate decision-making from public pressure is really what you know, 21st century politics is really all about. Yeah, because beyond the uh, really interesting things which I know people will recognise in terms of your infantilising the way people are infantilised through language policing in the way you described, Robert. Just in terms of your reflections on what Sophie said as well about, you know, the, the, the happy abandon with which people are called fascists or Nazis when they're trying to express dissatisfaction with the status quo, 
And that kind of uh, quite, we're quite prepared to kind of bandy round those words. Do you recognise that, or what do you think about that? Yes, I think what we could call this is a kind of strategic unpersoning of the other that is going on. And I think uh, what is revealing uh, here is the contradiction that pertains to it. Because in the first step, the opponent is not seen as someone who has different interests uh, that he cannot change, uh, that we have to accept in political struggle. Uh, no, the other is seen only consisting of some bad prejudices and of a mindset for which the other is fully responsible. So then we can call him Islamophobic, racist, sexist, whatever. But in the second step, uh, because it is his mindset, he is totally guilty of it, but this guilt can never be excused. That's the fine, funny uh, paradox in it. You are fully guilty, but you can never excuse yourself. You can never change your mindset and say, okay, it's true, I, I started now thinking differently. You are still fully guilty, and the other does not even want you to, uh, to excuse yourself. The other wants you to remain a racist and sexist and whatever. And I think this is uh, the libidinal struct structure of this argument, to make the other fully responsible, but then not... Uh, not engage in the consequences, what the notion of responsibility means, and grant the other the freedom to excuse himself and become a person again. Sophie, one of the things that I wrote a chapter for a localist on language, and one of the things that I was arguing there, but one of the things which I'm fascinated about is how, in order to use the right language, you would have to have gone on a speech codes course. And there is a, 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 the BBC have just uh, issued a diversity statement which I thought was a, a parody, a W1A parody, for those of you who follow it, only to discover it. Anyway, apparently, um, if you pass a sort of course, you can walk around and have a kind of diversity ally badge on, to prove, <laughs> particularly in relation to attitudes to LGBTQ people. Even as I say LGBTQ, I'm thinking, is there another letter I've missed off? Will I get in trouble? And the reason I'm saying that is because, you know, when I kind of you know, go home to my hometown, see my mum and everything. Um, people, ordinary people, as it were, just do, are not familiar with the niceties of what is the correct language to use. And that is then seen as them being ignorant and lots of policy documents talk about, you know, uh, banning banter, which is often ordinary people talking to each other without using all the... I mean, is that something which maybe explains why people feel so alienated on the language front. Absolutely. I think um, one of the things that people consistently talk about in, fo in my focus groups is around stress. Um, and I think this is an interesting word. We've started talking a lot about insecurity in our politics and our societies, but I think stress is equally as important. Um, and it's this, a feeling of compound stresses all coming together. And a lot of that is around the perceived policing of behavior and language. Um, people say to me in these sort of quite um, melancholy ways that they feel that they're walking on eggshells all the time and it prohibits them from engaging in things. Um, obviously with social media, even for people in Westminster and so on, there are, there are certain areas you are anxious about engaging with. I have written today about feminism and trans politics um, and am terrified of um, what this will do to my uh, social media mentions. Um, but, you know, so I think that's quite nefarious. But um, 
I think this point around around stress and 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 anxiety uh, is is quite suppressive. And if you think about, we used to have a lot of the discourse that is happening right now in our politics. It's actually uh, conversations that were quite easy to have back, say, 30 years ago. I mean, our discourse was more sexist, it was more racist, um, and in many ways it was more free. Now, you can say it's, it's a good thing that we have um, created new boundaries around these types of language, and obviously there is a silencing effect of um, pejorative language on people who are victimized um, and, and suppressed by them as well. But that language, that those instincts, those concerns, um, they didn't disappear from our society when we became more civil in our public discourse. They just became held in a private domain. And what's happening now with, with populist candidates and parties um, and, and movements is a lot of it is actually being fueled by this sense of, of um, bringing up the bodies. It's, it's actually bringing a lot of that discourse back out from the privately held views into the public domain and, and challenging what is acceptable. So I think with if we are to talk about populism, it's not just about saying, I represent your views. It's also something very powerful in saying, I will liberate you. I will liberate your language. I will liberate your perspectives. And I will redraw the boundaries of um, what is and isn't allowed. So um, I think that's been an incredibly powerful force in, in all the movements that we've had recently. Frank, because I am going to come out to the audience in, in a minute, but one of the things that Robert was saying was his explanation was... Um, the neoliberalism issue. So I, I, I wouldn't mind your thoughts on that. I suppose it is always a question of why some of these things have happened. I thought that Robert explained well that infantilising on the plane, but but you've written extensively about um, uh, what's happening on campuses, and it is the case that young people seem to want to be protected from words, and words are a great source of some of the big controversies on campus at the moment. I mean, we've joked, or I joked in the opening. Um, uh, talk about you know the ban on clapping, but there's a kind of serious point here, which is just that people do feel that they want to be treated as though they need a trigger warning on everything. Is that kind of neoliberalism? I mean, what did you think of uh, Robert's thesis on on on, on the infantilising use of language? Well, I, I agree with, with Robert on the infantilising dimensions and his description and the of the process. I don't think it's reducible to neo. I don't like the word neoliberalism. I don't actually know what that means. Um, it's very often used uh, in a way that is almost like taken for granted. But I, I think that something very important happened in the, uh, in, at the time that he, that uh, Robert describes, you know, the early 80s, which was the depoliticization of public life, and where you had the uh, erosion of ideologies. You know, that process coming to coming to an end. But I think what was very important at that point is that precisely at that time when uh, the, the distinction between left and right became pretty insignificant. You had this, what I call, therapeutic turn, where, it, where the um, increasingly sort of the, uh, people began to interpret problems that used to have a, a social or economic vocabulary in psychological terms. And that had a profound impact on language, and it had particularly a profound impact on public policy. The, in the Labour Party in this country even used to talk about the politics of behaviour. Uh, as a way of managing our internal life. And the colonization of our internal life, of, of actually uh, sort of, uh, of, of regulating us, became really important because 
you and I in this room often talk about the threat to free speech. And I think that's true, but there's an even more insidious development that has occurred, which is the attempt to not just simply regulate the way we speak, but the way we think, begin to think about attitudes. So now you have a situation where four-year-old children are being given consent classes, as if they, as if, I don't know what consent is at my age, but a four-year-old certainly doesn't, doesn't know what... what don't tweet that he doesn't know what consent is. <laughs> <laughs> Bad start to the battle yeah. of ideas. Well, you know what I mean, yeah. So, so the idea that somehow you're going to send people to these workshops, it, re it reminds me of the Stalinist era where people were sent to, you know, almost re-educate themselves in a, in a new kind of a way. Uh, I think that, that becomes really, really insidious because the consequence of that and I don't think that's really been brought out. I mean, Sophie was talking about the silencing effect. The other side of it is that we're silencing ourselves. I mean, so many people are silencing themselves. So when uh, this week I went around my university where they had a new, uh, they, they just published this thing about what kind of costumes you can wear in Halloween and what you couldn't wear. You know, I was talking to all these students and they were laughing and they said, look, this is just a bunch of idiots. You know, we're not like them, everything else. So when I asked them, well, why don't you speak out? Why don't you oppose this new rule that you cannot wear a cowboy hat or a, a sombrero? They all looked at their shoelaces. And basically what they were saying in their body language is that they were censoring themselves, which I think what, is what most students now do. They, just say, they, they say, well, I cannot be bothered. But what they really mean is I'm too, a little bit too cowardly to actually stand up and be counted and to kind of confront this kind of language. And I think when, when so many people are censoring themselves, then that has a much more uh, insidious and uh, corrosive effect on public debate than if you are being censored. It was, it's funny, actually. I, 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 did, uh, I ended up doing a workshop at Warwick uh, University where um, the, the workshop was where all of the students were saying to me, what can we do to fight against the malign influence of identity politics on campus? Claire, what can we do with all these mad social... So I said what they should do, and they all said, yeah, but we can't do that. And we can't do that, because if we do that, we'll get into it. And I said, well, there's no point asking me. I can't do it for you, you know. And they were all saying, it's only a few egregious examples. Most of us are sensible. But there was a real resistance for the reasons. So I really recognise that. Anyway, Robert, anything you want to come back on, Frank, on the kind of clarification before I go out to the mm -hmm. audience? Two small yeah. points, maybe. What can be done, uh, what is important is to criticise identity politics from the left. Yeah? Because what they claim is every opponent is a rightist. And I think a, a strict criticism from the left side is what dissipates this uh, um, mirage. And secondly, I think we should also not forget that this is not a phenomenon that concerns the whole of society, but that concerns only the elites. This happens only uh, within elite universities and only in luxury disciplines like philosophy, art, and so on. <laughs> it doesn't happen in medicine. <laughs> you, you cannot become a doctor when you can't see blood or so. No? so uh, and it does also not happen in the working class and in the outskirts. Only in elite universities, people say, oh, you have made me a victim now. In the outskirts of Vienna, Turkish people say to other Turkish people, fuck off, you victim. <laughs> there will be some all of that, but nonetheless, out to the audience. Hi, my, name, my name is Paul Talson. I have some very interesting ideas there. I particularly like the uh, uh, reference to unpersoning and also the, the lack of conversation. And it, my, my question really is to do with what do we do about it? I mean, Frank's talked about uh, the need for a new language. Where I, I'm thinking of um, 
Professor Eric Weinstein, who uh, was a professor at Evergreen University, got thrown out because even though he's from the left, strongly anti-racist, he fell foul of the, uh, uh, the system. Um, one of the things he points out through his, his own experience is that the, uh, this system is hermetically sealed and it, it's not accountable to a conversation. We, we, we can't even reach it. And any, any objections we might give to it, uh, they've already got um, easy ways of evading it. So how do we deal with this? The universities already are, uh, someone's described them as madrasas of leftism. Um, the, even our institutions of society now are being uh, populated by graduates who've come through this ideology and are now imposing this system of diversity on the rest of us. What do we do? Uh, can I also just clarify that there will be people in this audience who are thinking, and I know this, that, that all that this is is just an excuse to uh, be, uh, get rid of things so that everyone can say bigoted racist things, right? And that there, you know, there are gains that have been made in terms of the policing of language, which is if people think before they... Uh, they say vile things about people from different ethnicities. Anyway, the point I'm making is, if you disagree, argue. Right, yes. Yeah, um, Matthew Goodwin from the University of Kent. Uh, and I was distraught this morning to find out on um, BBC News that the union representative at my university who had uh, encouraged the um, policing of uh, Halloween costumes is also called Matt Goodwin at the University of Kent. <laughs> My email inbox this morning. I thought it was you. <laughs> um, I would advocate quite the opposite, for the record. Um, my my question really is is more to Frank, but I'd encourage the other panelists to because I'm interested in their views. Which is that you talked about the need to create a new political language, um, and you know my my thinking on this is that identity politics has already begun its slow, uh, inevitable death. The the traction, the momentum, the energy is actually in circles that are pointing out the inherent problems with identity politics, that if the Oxford Union puts up a video of Jordan Peterson, for example, and irrespective of your views of, of Jordan Peterson, it has 1.4 million clicks within 72 hours, right? When you've got that level of energy uh, pointing out the problems, then you know, the direction, I think, is inevitable. But how do you get people to buy in to a new political language? Because I don't see much willingness on either side uh, that, we, that you'd need for people to buy into some new consensual, um, perhaps uh, a compromise uh, in how we use language. Um, and I'd be keen to, particularly to hear about your views on that and, and the role of universities within that. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Mao Zedong said he regarded the, the Chinese peasant as a blank sheet of paper on which he could write anything he wanted. Uh, it seems to me there's a link up here between the, the destruction of the individual person through identity politics and the attempt to write a, a new political program um, which invades people's personal space to <coughs> total extinction of the individual. Um, now, that is a legacy of the 20th century. And perhaps the question we ought to be asking is to what extent it's our fault in terms of we have been through a period of intellectual bankruptcy, which ultimately produces Trump, because Trump is vomit, but um, the people threw up, and they threw up for a reason. Um, and so we haven't really addressed, although we've talked about a new political language, 
uh, we haven't addressed the constructive question of how we can uh, do, um, uh, produce something like that. And, and perhaps the very idea of politics as previously thought of is itself going out of fashion. And again, I uh, would um, point to Trump as some evidence of that. But how we go forward from there is another question. I just want to reflect on Frank's definition between experience and facts, which I think is key to this problem, really. Um, and I'd say that you know, politics and econ economics and, you know, polit and sociology have now realized that actually humans, we are not rational beings and we constantly make irrational decisions. You know? So I guess my point to that is that to me it's quite unrealistic to really expect us to have a conversation and a debate erasing all our experience and our feelings. I mean, I think that's inherent into who we are, and I think that should be part of the, uh, the debate. I don't think, I agree with you when you say that it shouldn't trump facts, but there should be a balance between experience and facts, and I think that's what's going to change. This new political language we're all talking about, I think that could be the start of that. Um, and this all really relates to pol uh, identity politics, and when you talked about that book, why I'm no longer talking to... Um, White, white people about race. Um, I mean, I read parts of the book, and I mean, I don't think the point of the author was literally, you know, I'm not going to talk about white people about it. I think the point is to acknowledge, you know, parts of history that have been neglected, and the book actually offers a really interesting, you know, um, scope of, of all these historical parts that we've missed. Um, finally, I'll say that, you know, you say about, yeah, choosing only men, you know, I am, I am a gay man, you know, you, you don't know that, and I'm also, you know, but what I mean by that is that, you know, you're assuming, you know, you're just, you're just saying, oh, yeah, you, you don't know what our individuals, you know, our individual situation and our individual okay. identity. I don't want everyone self-identify and I'll go mad. Right, okay, so we've got somebody there. Thanks very much for, to all the panel. I thought, thought it was really stimulating and interesting. But I've just got a question for Frank. When you're um, at a lecture and they give you a list of words that you can't say, what do you do? Do you obey them or, or, or do you rebel against it? Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Joanna Williams spiked. Uh, we're talking about political language, but one thing that really concerns me is the way that we are uh, using language nowadays to actually remove politics, um, to, to shut down politics altogether. So I'm thinking in particular of the um, suffix phobic that's added to so many words. So when we talk about people being uh, transphobic or homophobic or Islamophobic, um, particularly when we use the word denier as well, so climate change denier, we're kind of psychologizing um, people's um, what should be political issues as psychological problems. And um, what concerns me as well is the way that some people who are very supportive of free speech, who recognize that there are problems with censorship on campus, want to kind of challenge the current climate through psychological interventions around building resilience, about, around almost like cognitive behavioral therapy en masse on campus. Um, and I think this is completely wrong. I think we really need to be looking at how we can um, re pose these issues as political issues rather than psychological problems with individuals. Thank you so much. Um, I'm here to defend the political correctness snowflakes. So a lot of things have been said about how this weaponization of language or censorship invalidates people and hence obstructs our ability to have a productive conversation. I would just like to point out that usually these words that are censored are words that have been used to invalidate the opposite side oftentimes. Hence, I believe that 
aiming for a conversation that does not have the inclusion of these words is just recognizing the humanity of the other side that has often been silenced. And if you're not able to make an argument without using those words that immediately invalidate the other person, then I would argue that the one that doesn't have an argument is you. So we do not live in a post-identity world. And when we use the phrase, you just don't get it, it's not because we don't believe you don't, you're not able to get it, it's because we believe you do not experience it. And that's a fact. You do not experience certain things that come with having certain presentations. It's not the same as saying people can't care about children if they don't have children, because it's not about caring, it's about understanding. It's about getting what it means to be in a certain body. So when you have a certain identity, you have certain behaviors towards you and against you. <coughs> and those words that are being censored represent those behaviors. Arguing before I engage in arguments with you, I would like you to recognize my humanity by not using these words that have been historically used against me. I don't think it's too much to ask. Okay, and uh, very good contribution because it also sums up, in fact, the whole debate. And so I thought that was really useful. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, my name's Sheila. Um, I'm interested in the idea of wanting to keep, or elites wanting to keep people inside those labels that are created. So. The idea of racist, sexist, deniers, people who voted Brexit, kind of, um, how is it working that people are kept within these labels? Um, and, and the two questions I had really were, how are such small groups of elites actually changing the, the policies? You know, I think that, that issue of uh, students in Manchester and the clapping policy, wasn't it just 10 students one Wednesday evening deciding that, that they would do that? How can a whole policy be changed in response to that? And also, I'm interested over the whole of history. When did political language actually change to the psychological language? So. Uh, the labels of racist, sexist and Nazis, the only way out for those groups of people, it seems to me, is to admit to fear, anxiety, oh, we only did it because we're really scared. Um, so I'm interested, when did that actually change? Okay, thank you. Audience, I'll come back to you, so get ready for a second round. But Robert, is there anything you want to pick up? You, you can only pick up a couple of points, but anything um, you want to particularly answer? To the last question, maybe, why is the importance of very small groups, and you're right, I think, so striking, and I think there's an answer because they have the huge support of leftist parties who do not want to make leftist politics. And this is precisely why they displace all their efforts into these minor issues. Okay, anything else that, that, that's been said? Or are you happy with that? Maybe yeah. one. Yeah, one more. The yeah. gentleman who mentioned Trump. Uh, I think this is one of the crucial strategic mistakes of the left uh, to start to engage in this soft and sensitive talk uh, because that has allowed Trump alone by vulgar talking to represent the image of the man of the people. Uh, uh, the people said, okay, this must be one of us because he talks the way usually the left used, used to talk in the 70s. Uh, and, and this is on the symbolic level a, a key strategic mistake and this is the revenge of the working classes against these sensitive elites and, and snowflakes. Um, and I think the other crucial point that we should not overlook is that this problem cannot be solved on the level of the superstructure alone. If the left does not make a leftist politics, we cannot solve the problem of the discourse. For example, there is not only cultural reasons that led people to vote for Trump. Trump also uh, promised uh, to limit the migration of capital. And so 
Trump was the only one who actually did it and who stopped TTIP. All the European Social Democrats were hugely against TTIP, but nobody stood up and fought against it, and it was finally Trump, Bernie Sanders wanted to do the same, uh, who actually fulfilled this promise. And as long as we have a left who does not uh, do anything against the migration of capital, uh, the left will always invest into this pseudo-politics. Okay, thanks. Uh, Sophie? Two points. I think on this new political language, I mean, it, it can't just be about the way we speak, it could be about the issues that we're prepared to engage with and the way in which, and where we decide to set the boundaries. I mean, um, immigration is obviously the really big one, um, and I think, you know, there is a sort of quite clear position um, in my focus groups, but I think other surveys also bear this out, that people feel that um, successive governments um, in Britain, but also right across Europe, and have been um, particularly poor at engaging with the full spectrum of, um, of all the different issues, positive and negative, that can come up around immigration, and um, have been especially poor at dealing with what really inspires so much of the discord around it, which is integration. Um, I think about the MAC report, um, the Migration Advisory Committee report, which just came out. Um, it's the big report that's been commissioned by the Home Office uh, to effectively determine, to advise on our migration policy post-Brexit. Uh, the conclusion of this was that essentially we create a level playing field that doesn't preference EU or non-EU migration, but it preferences high-skilled migration. Now, in many ways, this does get to this would, in one fell swoop, address many of the issues that people have around immigration, whereas whether it's um, around the points of integration or whether it's around kind of the wage competition at the lower end of the um, labor force. Um, but that report also engaged, because it was trying to take an evidence-based approach, um, it, it engaged so poorly and lightly with any of these issues around the social and cultural aspects of immigration, um, which concerned me greatly. Um, and it also didn't talk about integration, really, um, which, again, is, is this crucial point. So I think an, another issue around um, this is where we are becoming challenged to talk about facts, if there is a racial element, particularly, um, and the problem with that is you actually blind yourself to uh, many of the disadvantages that particular um, groups and communities and ethnicities face. Um, if we can't talk about them at all, I mean, the sort of most extreme expression of this is you end up with a situation like in France, which has some of the worst um, integration uh, outcomes in the whole of Europe. And incredibly, I mean, you only have to go to the outskirts of Paris to the Bonnier and you can see it there um, for yourself. Um, and that's to the huge disadvantage of um, many of the minorities living in France as, and to the country as a whole. Um, but they don't collect information about race. Um, because it became such a fractured debate, and they said, oh, well, we're actually so colorblind um, now that we, we, just, we don't need people to identify in that sense because that divides us. Well, actually, in, in the practical application, um, it disadvantages everybody. Um, and there was a similar example, obviously, in the consultation for the 2021 census here in Britain, where um, the question was raised in that consultation whether to be more inclusive to transgender communities. Um, the gender should be removed altogether 
from the census. I mean, you know, and there are huge disadvantages that women face already in public policy making because of the huge data gaps that exist um, around gender and its role in all sorts of different aspects of society. So I think that's an example of where this intersection between our principles, which are evolving, um, and our policy making um, is, is actually where things are falling through the cracks and I don't think we're always getting it right. Um, and just finally, quickly on, on sort of a response to all of this. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, our political parties and their role in, in, in all of these different issues. And there has obviously been this huge call here for a new centrist party. That's what we need in Britain. We need a new centrist party. Um, and I think we had a centrist party for 20 years. We had Blair, Brown, we had the coalition, we had Cameron. We actually had 20 years of centrist public policy making principles, um, the Conservatives moving to the left, Labour moving to the right, um, and this sort of very happy place. And obviously on a social level and an economic level, I think it was a pretty good thing for the country. But what it meant was, and this is the huge danger, and we see this in, in uh, Germany as well, uh, when you create a centrist party, and this is the danger for Macron in the long term, and en marche, and what happens there, um, the only alternative when people decide they want change is either to move to the fringes or blow up the system. So I think, again, if, if we're thinking about the role of political parties in this, um, we need to think about how we create space for difference, but in a constructive way. Frank. Yeah, I think some interesting points were raised. On, uh, on the point of experience, I think experience is important in that you learn from it. Uh, and experience is important because it guides your feelings. But experience is not the medium for knowledge and understanding. Uh, and just because you've experienced something doesn't really actually mean you understand what you've experienced. So, for example, I actually think, at the risk of being arrogant, that I understand economics and the banking system better than a bank clerk at Barclays, right? Even though he's really experiencing banking, you know, sort of five days a week on a, on a regular basis. And very often, people you know, who draw on their experience as a way of making wider statements actually are, in, in my mind, often are basically simply talking about their feelings rather than something that can create the basis for uh, uh, discussion and arguments. I think experience is going to be taken seriously uh, because uh, the big challenge in, in a philosophical sense is the way that we mediate the particularities of, of groups and individuals wider universalistic kind of uh, dimension. I think that's the real challenge that we're confronted with. I think a lot of people in this room really underestimate the importance of identity politics. I don't think it's just a few people in the elites that are doing that. I think it's really filtered down within wider sections of society. It's not an accident that Trump supporters have basically taken on board the caricatures that they were sort of targeted with and have become adopted this white identity now. If you look at the alt-right, the alt-right mirrors in a caricatured way the, uh, the arguments that the left you know, sort of puts forward, so they've adopted. And everywhere I go, identity has become really crucially important. And I think it's wrong to imagine that the universities are this special zone that you know, do not uh, have an impact on the rest of society. I mean, 50% of young people go to universities and get socialized into the values that they 
you know, they don't just stop and, and that's it. They've, they've actually been re-educated to the point at which they have more in common with the university culture than the background that they come from. So I do think it's important to realize that this is a problem that is becoming, I would say, more and more powerful all the time. I mean, from my experience, I see the influence of this as, as being greater and greater. I also think this relates to Matthew's point about you know, what we do about it. I think the existing criticisms of this uh, are very shallow and very weak. Uh, we kind of draw on very old you know, sort of tropes. Everybody talks about you know, the Marxist in the universities or the post-structuralist in the universities. Uh, I've yet to meet anybody who's you know, genuinely a Marxist. I mean, they're conspicuous by their absence at my university and other universities I've been to. Some of them call themselves post-Marxist which, you know, I don't know what that means. You know, it's a bit, you know, kind of one of those confusing things. But, you know, the, the, the universities are not the hotbed of the left. I mean, unless we use the left in a completely meaningless sense. You know, they got nothing to do with what, anything that's classically left-wing. Uh, and it seems to me that what has happened is that we got this, you know, kind of weird idea of what university culture is really all about and the way that the system works. And I think the really important challenge for us is to be able to draw on contemporary experience and, and provide a critique of, uh, of what's going on within the universities that is a bit more nuanced and is much more based upon, a, upon the, uh, kind of the, the clear experiences of our, of our society. What uh, do I do about uh, quick. vocabulary yeah, quick. that I'm given? I'm in a privileged position. I'm, you know, I've been a professor for a long time. I can just say fuck off. You know, I can, I can do what I can. But I, and you I, keep saying that. But, but, but a lot of younger colleagues that I know, especially who haven't got a tenure yet, are extremely insecure about that. And 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 in, the, and in their hearts of hearts, they hate themselves for going along with this. Okay. I have time to take everyone, but I'm going to do what I can. First of all, I'd like to thank the woman over there who stood... I'm assuming woman, sorry. <laughs> stood up and made her point, because just in my experience as a young person, I find quite often these tens of people don't really want to sit through an hour of other people's opinions. At least, it's what I've found. Although, and to be able to actually have those opinions and want to have them challenged is something that I really value, and I congratulate you for doing that. I'm most concerned about the moment in terms of political language is the desensitization of certain terms. So in terms of the fact that in, say, the 50s or the 60s, being a racist was something that you meant you lynched people, and now it's something that you can use a dark-skinned emoji when you don't have the same skin tone, or the idea that in, to be a Nazi when they ruled Germany was to be something horrible, and now it's to teach your pug to raise its paw, is I think that really puts an issue on the fact that we have nothing to call these people anymore, the really harsh people, because when we overuse these terms, they become meaningless. I was wondering how you suggest we move forward once that's happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. I was inclined to, to agree with those people who've made the point that... Um, identity politics and the changes in language often have to do with actually closing down, having a serious um, political discussion. And I think you were quite wrong, Robert, to say that, you know, groups like n medical people or, or the working class are unaffected about these things. Mm -hmm. To give you just two very small examples, mm -hmm to try and raise a challenge about female genital mutilation amongst my fellow pediatricians caused such opium 
and such exclusion, there was absolutely no preparedness to even discuss something complicated. It was simply a matter of you are against it, full stop. The other issue is in the area of sort of psychiatry and children. Any challenge to the idea of gender alteration, even in very young children, is now completely out of bounds. You cannot challenge certain things because now you are entering the, the politics you know, of, of, of gender and it's far too sensitive. Doctors have to be isolated from that and just carry out the medical or surgical procedures. Hi, I'm Donald, as in Trump. <laughs> I never thought I'd live to see the day when my name would become a pejorative term, but it has. <laughs> I'd like to argue against the panel here, really, because, you know, language, I'm not that bothered about this. I'll tell you why. Language is an amazingly robust thing. It's almost immune from the idle chatter in our universities among students. And uh, meaning is use. Meaning is genuinely use. And people roll their eyes and we will move on because uh, uh, linguistically language changes because people use it communally. And the vast majority of people won't have any truck with the excesses and the outliers. But I wholly agree that there's a much bigger threat uh, around the colonization of our internal world. And let me give you an example. Uh, I'm a business guy and I'm on boards of public and private sector things. I, I was put through a diversity course recently where I was given an unconscious bias course. I was given a questionnaire which basically said, you're guilty, Donald, because you were born. <laughs> and uh, since when did we find it acceptable that some board in HR could, could probe my unconscious? Since when did that happen? Do they have any qualifications in this area? Have they any right to probe my unconscious or make these accusations using these half-baked questionnaires? And I, so I, my appeal is that the unconsciousness, this whole probing, formalization in the workplace and so on is the real evil. The language thing is mostly puff. Okay, that's very interesting. Hello, uh, I'm Dan Smith. I'm an English teacher. I just wanted to um, reinforce the idea that it's not just in the universities. As a teacher, I see lots of really troubling ideas around gender and not being able to question that as a teacher, very much being censored from that. Um, there's two very quick things. Uh, firstly, I really liked what Robert said about what can we bear as adults. I think that links into what can we understand of each other as adults. I think it links back to the comment made behind me. Um, that if we have a certain lived experience, we cannot uh, be transformed beyond that. And that really concerns me, and that as an adult, I believe I can and I want to understand other people's experience, but if I'm denied so many different codes of speech, um, and if I use those codes of speech, uh, the phrase such as, you are denying my existence, um, has been used. Okay, so I just, I'm interested around codes of speech that almost encircle people. Okay, if I have a certain code of speech, I'm encircled. Um, I have this other code of speech that's the new fancy code of speech, I'm encircled. And that as an adult, um, I have not the capacity to go beyond my codes and my lived experience. Hello, uh, my name's Alwyn Mosley. I come from, uh, I'm a, the Dean of a School of Art and Design in a university. And I'm, trouble, I'm, I'm a little bit troubled by what we hear, what we check, what we believe and what is the truth. So right the way through this morning I've heard of 
things like there are classes on consent for four-year-olds or there is a university where Halloween uh, costumes have been or even that university colleagues have been given a list of words they're not allowed to use. And my experience of that is a couple of years ago in our university, suddenly, out of the blue, there we were in the full glare of, of the media for having a code of language that was um, about diversity that we'd all apparently been told to sign up to. Uh, I had no knowledge of this and I'm the dean of a school. It, what it was was that somebody, a journalist somewhere, had trawled for an article they were writing, had found a document probably on, a, on, a, on, a, um, on our uh, SharePoint website or whatever, that was a <clears throat> that was a, a, a just just a piece, just a thought. Should we be altering our language around certain things? This got my God! Did it take off? It was picked up by all kinds, and it went on for years. I mean, it's been going on. You could probably. I wouldn't be surprised if next week there's something again about the policy that we have in our university around language, and isn't this terrible? And it, it's just not true. So I'm, I'm concerned about checking things, and it's like it's like triggering, isn't it? It's the PC triggering thing. Oh my God, there's another university who's done something really stupid, and you say, is it? It's ten students in a room who mentioned it, and somebody picked it up and thought it was a great news story. And I, I don't buy, I don't believe anything I read anywhere ever anymore at all about anything other than the lady there who I can quite believe. I think that's quite useful, but it's also said a lot. I mean, usually when I'm speaking on free speech, people will say, this is exaggerated, it's the media. And in fact, some of those stories are indeed, you know, the sun has set up a snowflake hotline. <laughs> I mean, it's witty, but it obviously it kind of speaks to what you've said. But on the other hand, that can also be a way of saying, this isn't happening, no, nothing to see here. So it's getting that balance right. Yes. Um, so my name's Fiona, and I'm in a sixth form student. And I had to disagree with what you said about experience, because I feel like as a black female myself, and in a society now, or in, um, a time where a lot of people feel like, well, I've seen on Instagram, because I am in touch with social media, people say, oh, racism doesn't exist. Feel like this doesn't exist. And I feel like the reason why people would think that, I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong to think that, because that's because of their area, their bubble, who they mean, who they see, etc. But I feel like it is wrong and it comes to experience because me, myself, I have experienced it. My family has experienced it. And so how can you say that racism doesn't exist? And I feel like because of that, when people say, oh, you need to experience it to really understand it, I have to agree. Because I feel like me, myself, I can't, I can't have someone who hasn't experienced racism, maybe lives in a maybe in a, in a complete white area, I don't want to be rude in that sense, but in a complete white area where there wouldn't be really a high percentage of racism to be like to me, oh, racism doesn't exist, when it does exist, you know? So I feel like in that sense, I have to disagree with the idea of experience, not saying that you'd understand anymore. So yeah. No, thank you. Hi, um, I'm Tanya Hughes, and I'm a student at Imperial College studying science communication, and I can tell you there's a lot of, they just don't get it from the science community who assume that the public cannot understand complex, uh, complex issues. And of course, we're learning on the course that that's not true. We've been taught to have a little bit more wider understanding. Um, but I'd just like to pick up on Claire's point about infantilisation, because that's something I'm incredibly 
angry about, you know, I'm 54, I'm not a child, I don't need to be told what to do. Um, I certainly don't need to be told uh, what language to be scared of, offended by, I'll be offended by what I want. Uh, I certainly don't need to be told not to have a fight with someone about something that I don't disagree with. And I certainly don't need to be told that I just don't get it. Because I think one of the defining qualities of an adult is empathy. And I think we're sort of, empathy has been smashed out of debate. Uh, because you're right, of course, I, I, I am not a black young woman. I, I cannot un directly understand racism as you've experienced it. But I can understand that you have and can perhaps be part of, you know, putting that right in some way. So um, I think empathy is incredibly important. I'd like to know what you think about how we can, you know, reignite a bit of empathy in society. Okay, thank you. Hi. Hi there, Graham Simpson. I was interested in uh, role models and uh, the, is there a time and a place where free speech and language should be somehow restricted? <clears throat> in reference to um, our favourite politician Boris Johnson in The Telegraph, a couple of his articles, the burqa um, letterbox and the, the uh, suicide vest. So yeah, just thinking about that, was, is he a sort of champion for free speech and we should be using any language in any realm or is he really not appropriate as a statesman to use that type of language? I think that's a really good question, but, but also because somebody was saying about empathy, one of the things that's also happened is that the metaphor is in danger. Um, so when Chuka Amuna uh, uh, called on Corbyn supporters, when he said, call off the dogs, there was, uh, there was endless, endless discussion amongst Corbyn supporters who said, we're not dogs. And we thought, <laughs> we, we, we know that. <laughs> I don't think that's what he meant. However, however, it is also the case that when Boris Johnson compared the wearing of the burqa to the letterbox, the very same people who were saying, you know, all the rest of it were a bit like, well, that's a really insulting, you know, he's saying it's like a letterbox. But of course, there was obviously something very insulting as well, right? So, so I, I, I think that is interesting because it's the dehumanising point that, that's been referred to. The de you know, if you say you look like a letterbox, then obviously that has, a, a, there is a kind of, code that's going on there. Uh, I listened to uh, Rennie Edo Lodge's book, I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, on an audiobook, and it's read by the author. So it's the only book you can actively disprove the premise of without having to actually consider any of the arguments. Um, they, but the reason I mention that is because it's a um, deeply unconvincing book. Um, and so, Frank, I wanted to push you a little bit on the idea that um, this kind of politics is percolated, because people don't like being written off and um, I completely accept that there will be experiences in primary schools where uh, kids are adopting some of the language of identity politics. Um, I'm just curious as to, and I'd like you to expand a little bit on whether if you go outside of a particular um, arena, how is this playing out? How does it percolate? Because it seems the whole premise is writing people off and saying we don't need to speak to them, they just don't get it. Um, and you see that a lot in Brexit as well. Um, yeah, I'm a lawyer who voted for Brexit, and Helena Kennedy tweeted the other day that there are a very low number of people uh, in the legal profession who voted for Brexit, and they're all racist, homophobes. They just don't care about convincing people. Um, so, and then that, just quickly on Fiona's uh, point at the front, I guess that's what's so important, is that, um, of course, if anyone says on Instagram that racism doesn't exist, they're wrong. Um, but the, the important thing to do, I suppose, is to go out and convince and talk to people and proceed on the basis that whilst I certainly can't experience racism, 
I can try and understand it and uh, also try and help convince other people about it. Because if, if people are thinking um, that racism doesn't exist okay. or failing to understand it, then it's a problem of convincing people rather than telling them that their opinion doesn't matter. A few of my colleagues at university tell me that this is all exaggerated. Um, and they tend to be people that have never said anything controversial. Because uh, certainly my experience of university, as soon as I say anything slightly controversial, management are particularly anxious and concerned. And the problem I find is the language that they use is really slippery. So they say things like, it's not what you've said, it's the way you say it. Uh, and that can mean it's a little bit tabloidy. Or it can mean, as in a recent article I wrote about transgenderism, they say it's a bit nasty, and I purposefully tried not to write a nasty article, but it doesn't seem to matter because it's still being defined as nasty. And then, you, then the latest one is that uh, it's creating an atmosphere of intimidation. This is why hundreds of people online are trying to argue that I should get sacked or whatever. I'm being represented as someone created an, an atmosphere of intimidation. Ironically, probably the best thing that's happened in terms of this, in terms of my defence, is somebody said that I should be taken out in terms of as a threat, which I don't really take as any real threat, but I know I can use that emotionally against the university. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, well, what, what can you do in this situation? Because this is not a proper argument or discussion we're having. It's just about one person's emotion ver versus another. Uh, thank you very much. I, I'm going to get the, uh, the panellists to sum up. OK, Robert, your final thoughts for the, this morning, please. Very interesting sentence. I feel offended by what I want. You are right. And I think this is the crucial point here. Uh, if you are offended, it is your own decision. And that means it's in your own power also to be not offended. Social life not only consists of realities, but also of constitutive fictions. So politeness is one of the constitutive fictions that we uh, maintain. And civilized life, I think, uh, consists of the fiction that you are able to transcend your experiences. And that is the utter respect that you can bring to the other, that you assume that the other, no matter what experience and what background they have, are able to transcend them. And as long as we maintain them, this fiction and the maintenance of this fiction can create very substantial realities. And um, I come to a last point concerning empathy and civilized life. Um, and this is also the reason why you cannot police it down to using certain words or not using certain words. This is why all these language policies of these language policing agents always fail, because you cannot bring it down to certain words or not. Um, I want to tell a small anecdote. Uh, it happened here in England a couple of years ago. Um, the British Society of Phenomenology dedicated its annual session to the work of a living philosopher, Slovene philosopher Slavoj Žižek. Uh, I had been friends with Žižek for many years before already, and I was invited as one of the people who commented upon his work. Žižek was there at the conference, and it was a funny conference. He commented about all our comments and so on. And in the end, uh, at the last coffee break of this conference, Žižek had to leave, and all these scholars were standing next to each other with their coffee cups and Zizek said to everybody goodbye goodbye thank you very much goodbye goodbye and I was by coincidence standing as the last person in the, in the row and I was the only one with a very long personal friendship with the philosopher and when he came to me he said and fuck off <laughs> and, and I was very pleased yeah, of course he, he had shown to me that 
I am a real friend, that I, I can transcend my Im immediate feelings and, uh, and that this is deep compassion and empathy. So even the worst words can sometimes be expressions of utmost empathy. <laughs> One point that we haven't discussed, but which comes back to this point around the role that political parties are playing in the formation, and we've discussed that, that it's on the left, but we need to talk about the fact that there is something very particular going on in social democratic parties and what's happened to their evolution of their constituencies, right, which have become very diverse. And as their interests have become more diverse, it's more difficult for them to unite them around common interests. So you actually end up emphasizing each of their individual identities and say, we will represent and promote your interests, your interests, your interests, your interests. So I think this is a critical force in, in what's been going on, certainly in the identity politics coming from the left. Um, I think the other thing is, and, and to take a longer view at this, there is also an aspect of this kind of hyper-individualism in our, in our social life as well. I mean, if we think about um, the responsibility that we are all ascribed um, in this kind of identity politics, or we're, if we talk about lived experience, uh, you cannot understand because that's not your experience or whatever. Um, you know, as a white person, I am not individually responsible for the sins committed in the name of colonialism, for example. Um, we need, but we need to be able to talk more about colonialism, these histories, debate its legacies, recognize that it might still be present in our societies today, but they are two separate things. Um, so, you know, ascribing an individual responsibility, I think, is hugely destructive. Um, and just finally, I think, I agree, I think civility and empathy are absolutely critical, but one counterpoint to that, um, we also, for that to be meaningful, we need to ident identify where empathy is, um, is being a sort of falsely deployed in a rather cynical way. Um, just two quick examples um, which come from the right. Uh, you will see you kippers, um, <laughs> some of the most uh, ardent, uh, outspoken people against FGM, right? And I'm sure they care about FGM and women's issues on some level, but there's another motivation there, of course. And in the same way that in my focus groups, I sit there with men who I know from, you know, conversations earlier or later in the day are quite misogynistic in their views about women, but will be absolutely tearing into the burqa and the hijab and so on in defense of women's liberation. And that to me is just as destructive. So we need empathy, but it needs to be genuine. <laughs> Well, well, just on Sophie's point, the very fact that you have fairly misogynist or fairly racist individuals using their, you know, I was talking about the importance of the burqa and liberating women uh, in that kind of very selective way indicates that they too have internalized identity politics. And I think that's what I find remarkable, that you have these hardline UKIP types and other individuals who speak exactly the same language as college, you know, sort of... Uh, kind of uh, promoters of, of, of social justice. And there's nothing to distinguish them except that they have different ways of expressing them and their hatreds are a little bit different. Um, and I do think that we, we, you know, we mustn't underestimate how important it is. I totally agree with my friend, the Dean, because you know, the, the world that I live in, is, it, this is just going constantly. Uh, and I know universities where literally every single administrator has been sent away on a consent class. And their job is to then come back 
and to teach the staff about what kind of language to use and how, how they should behave with kids. So there's a kind of almost like a project there which is institutionalized. We just mean to say that you know, the, the Sun and other papers don't invent stories that are going on, but there, there's a reality that has occurred, and I can give you loads of examples from my experience, but I'm not going to do it because I haven't got time. But the one thing I really want to come back on is experience, because I think one of the key uh, lessons, I think, of, of, of the modern era since the Enlightenment is that what's really important and, and what makes a society possible is our capacity to share experience. And in the very act of sharing experience, that experience no longer becomes fossilized, no longer becomes the property of a particular individual or a group, but actually becomes something much more solid. And what's really, imp what's really important about the capacity to share experience and to transcend experience is you create a kind of knowledge and a, and a range of insights which allows those people with their, specific with their own specific experiences to understand their predicament even more. So I would argue that nobody in this room, whatever their experience, can truly understand you know, sort of, you know, what has happened to them and the kind of range of forces that have shaped and molded them, unless they see it from the point of view of a wider set of ideals that comes about through the, you know, to, to the way that uh, uh, sort of human experiences come together. And it's, it's the capacity of society to create a social experience and to be able to institutionalize it that becomes the foundation on which we can make, understand the world we live in. It's also the foundation on which a new politics has really got to, got to, got to emerge. And at the moment, one of the reasons why politics is going on empty is because we stopped the sharing, the genuine sharing of our experience. We stopped the arguments and the debates that actually make that possible. And I think that that has a kind of a deathly effect upon not just the universities, but upon the, uh, upon the entirety of our social and public life. And it's that which we need to kind of come back upon, which is why we need discussions like we have having here, where we can argue and, and go away and not see each other as uh, our enemies, you know, or, or our adversaries, but as people with different points of view. Okay, thank you very much.